This is Trepwire Week in Review for the week ending January 19th, 2024. I'm Haley Keen with Trep, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS commercial real estate and CLO markets. I'm with Lonnie Hendry, Chief Product Officer, and Stephen Bushbaum, Research Director. This week, we saw retail sales numbers showing holiday shopping ended on a strong note, and initial jobless claims came in at the lowest level in over a year. But we also saw earnings from the largest banks fall in the fourth quarter, as revenue growth stalled and lost provisioning and expenses spiked. Stephen, can you break down the macro news for us? Absolutely. So I'd say if I had to characterize what we're seeing right now, this feels a little bit like the New Year's, I hate to call it a hangover, but in a way it kind of feels that way. If we think back to what we heard some economists say back in the fourth quarter, and particularly November, December, things were looking great. We were pricing in rate cuts, and we had all of that enthusiasm going a year end. However, going into that, we were warned the disinflationary process will be bumpy. It's not a straight line. Prepare for some volatility. So I feel like this is exactly what we're getting right now, is we're continuing to see what we had already known what was the case, a resilient consumer, some concerns about inflation, the margin. And then with the bank earnings, we still have some underlying fundamental stress to the system. Nothing, nothing terrible, nothing catastrophic to worry about and, and lose sleep over, but there's still pressures there in the banking system. And in particular, if you look at, say, the SOFOR rate, I was reading a really good piece from Zero Hedge earlier today, and it was, it was showing the spike in the overnight funding rate back in December and putting that in context relative to the dovish pivot that we heard from the Fed. I feel like that was a really, really well thought out piece and that the dovish pivot kind of caught some of us by surprise. And Zero Hedge was out there saying all along, hey, just so you know, like if we look at what's going on in the overnight funding space and with reserves being drawn down, there is some pressure. There, there's some stress there. And so the Fed presumably was watching that stress in the reserves and the the, the banking sector and saw these spikes in the overnight funding rate and said, you know what, we, we actually do need to make a bit of a dovish pivot here to loosen financial conditions a little bit, just to try and give some conviction back to markets that we're not going to have liquidity seize up like has happened a couple times in the last five years. Yeah, that's an interesting point, Stephen. And I think, you know, there's definitely something there, right? I mean, the idea is you have some disconnected entities that you know the reality is have a closer connection than what the markets would probably like to to know going back though to some of the the headline uh, stories that haley had mentioned let me give you some specifics on those and maybe get your feedback you know so interestingly enough you know retail sales were really strong coming out of the holiday season so if you look at the december retail sales number they were positive you know the idea was driven sales at department stores and online retailers were the primary driver for those positive gains some potential negative if you wanted to find something negative in the report was restaurants and bars uh, saw spending flatlining continues to show that's not all good news on the consumer side there's definitely some pullback and there's you know, estimates out there saying that 2024 may see a drawdown in consumer spending as people start to try to save and build up some of their household savings. So just some interesting thoughts there. You know, if you look at the uh, the jobless claims, and I know this was something that you and I spoke about earlier today, it's the lowest level of uh, claims in over a year, um, which really just highlights how strong the labor market is. 
On a seasonally adjusted basis, uh, claims are down 6% from the recent highs in mid-November. So interesting to see. We'll know if that gets revised at some point here in the future. Um, but the initial readings were super positive for strong labor market. And then just a couple of other interesting takeaways. Uh, we had some, some insight this week from, I believe, JLL put out a report on the cost to build full-service hotels and urban markets. So we haven't done a lot of hotel stories over the last couple of weeks, but this is an interesting set of, of data that we'll kind of talk through briefly. So they estimated the cost to build a full-service hotel in the country's ur urban markets was up by more than 15% last year, up to a total of about $820,000 per room. And again, that's according to the JLL Hotel and Hospitality Report, 40% above the cost to acquire a hotel. So really interesting there. For the most part, it's been expensive to build in urban markets. I mean, that's not news. But if you look at the compounded increase over the last couple of years, just to give some context, in 2022, the cost was you know significantly less, about 490000 a room. We're up to 819000 So I don't know how sustainable that is. And I think that starts to beg the question on the hotel side, you're going to start seeing a supply and demand imbalance in that market for these full service, really nice urban core located type of hotel properties. Yeah, I think that's, we see kind of some common themes here throughout the data and I'll, I'll work backwards. So start with the cost to build a full service hotel issue. We, we know across commercial real estate that construction costs are elevated. That plays into inflation ultimately. Some of the inflationary pressures are, they're gonna take a while to abate fully. And unless, I can't can't tell you how many times we've said this, Lonnie, right? Is until we start seeing capitulation in consumer spending and jobless claims tick up, there's really not much that's gonna move the needle to bring inflation markedly down you know, say to, to 1% or maybe even the 2% level. I've heard some economists think inflation will get down to the Fed's 2% target, but I've heard a decent number of economists out there saying, well, we think two and a half, three percent 3% is really more realistic for the next couple of years because of factors like this, the demographic shifts. I would say certainly with the geopolitical tensions at large, inflation, I think, still is one of those risks that we'll, we'll continue to be talking about throughout 2024. And then turning to the retail sales and, and jobless claims, you know, this was really interesting to see how strong that, that retail data was. I mean, we, we know it's been really good news for that sector for a while now, given the property transaction data points we've been following, the macro retail sales data. So this wasn't too much of a surprise. And as you mentioned, Lonnie, that shift in consumer spending across sectors is one that I think we'll continue to see throughout 2024 as the consumer excess savings gets drawn down. And certainly if we start seeing any weakness in the labor market. But I think one thing that is not talked about a lot, surprisingly, at least I haven't heard it talked about that much. If we are trusting the, the general guidance from economists that's based on you know, these old models, and I'll call them old, right? They're, they're still using recent data, but um, these models were developed by economists 15, 20, 50 years ago. The technological changes and structural changes we've had in the economy, namely the gig economy, while it's not a drastic or quick shifting thing like productivity, I, I, I still think that that is an under-modeled element of today's data, that some of the resilience that you see in the labor market data, the retail sales, speaks to just how different the economy is today than even 10 years ago, right? We didn't have Grubhub people all over New York on electric bicycles 15 years ago, right? And that's part of the, the, the data we're modeling. And so to some extent, I, 
I would say I'm not surprised to see this sort of resilience or the continued, well, we're beating, we're beating, we're beating expectations. Because if expectations are based off of stale models, yeah, this is this is to be expected. I agree with you. It's an interesting construct to to examine. To your point, like the the Grubhub, the Instacart, I mean, you name it, things that people either did without because of the inconvenience factor or they went and stopped, shopped in person and potentially didn't buy as many items. Now people are getting Amazon packages, food, necessities delivered daily, sometimes multiple times. I agree with you. It's And if you look at the, the revision of all of these numbers after the fact, <laughs> it just you know doesn't leave me with a huge amount of confidence in the headline number. Um, but it is what it is. I mean, this is what the market looks at still, I think, from that perspective. People look forward to seeing retail sales data. They look forward to seeing jobless claims. Um, but I would agree 100%. I think it's antiquated given where we're at in today's market. So moving over to import price index data that we got this week, the benefit from lower fuel import prices waned in December. So we saw global energy prices were volatile in the second half of last year, causing some noticeable swings in U.S. import prices, but monetary policy implications were minimal at best. The, the general high-level takeaway here is that in the big picture, the higher-than-expected ex readings add to the sense that inflation progress may be bumpier in the coming months after considerable progress was made last summer. So again, another data point telling us that the road to lower inflation will continue to be bumpy. Let's back up from this for one moment before we close out the, the macro section and just talk about what this means for interest rates and commercial real estate pricing implications. If we look at the probability of a Fed rate cut in March, so the probability of a 25 basis point cut in March had ballooned up to, I think, as high as 70%, maybe in a little bit higher than, than that. But one week ago from today, it was a 70% probability of a 25 basis point cut. That has dropped down to just under 56% today. And so the probability of the Fed holding rates as they are at that target range of five and a quarter to five and a half percent Fed's fund rate, the probability of that hold has almost doubled in the last week. For commercial real estate, Crefsi, we had been talking about the dovish pivot and some of the bullishness or optimism that transactions and deal flow would increase um, over the first quarter as rates came down. And now we're seeing some of that upward pressure on rates come back into play. And so while well, we talked a couple episodes ago about you know whether or not there's some magic to the 4% 10-year treasury level, you know, now we're we're pushing 415. It looks like we're moving to you know the, the four and a quarter range potentially here in the next couple of weeks if we continue to get strong economic data. Yeah, Stephen, it's really interesting when you look at the interest rates um, in light of Crefsi and some of the optimism coming out there and some of the the challenges you just laid out. I do think to maybe provide a little bit of a counter to that uh, narrative and potentially some upside for 2024 is I, I saw online today that there's discussion in Congress of passing a bill that allows for that 100% bonus depreciation to be back in um, in 2024. I think it had evolved to where it was 60% for 24, so it had gone from 100 to 80 to 60, um, and there's some discussion about bringing that back. So, you know, maybe even if there's you know, less activity from the Fed on the rate side, having that carrot out there for the uh, the depreciation um, may be a catalyst for keeping transaction volume um, slightly elevated, you know, in 2024 versus where it would be without that. 
And I mentioned bank earnings in the intro, but last week we saw earnings from the largest banks fall in the fourth quarter, and the market's reaction was negative overall. We're going to be putting out a piece on this that goes in-depth on loss provisions and aggregate earnings and revenues tomorrow. But Stephen, can you talk through some of the findings? Earnings from the largest banks fell in the fourth quarter as revenue growth stalled and loss provisioning and expenses spiked. The market's reaction was negative overall, with Citigroup gaining on the news and the other banks' share prices falling. So aggregate earnings for the four largest banks fell by 40.8% from the fourth quarter of 2022 relative to 23. The drop was especially large for Citigroup, which posted a quarterly loss on lower revenues and higher expenses, including restructuring costs. Total revenues for the four banks rose by 2.1% from fourth quarter 2022. Net interest income rose by 4.9%. And the combination of the inverted yield curve and lower lending volumes have really sapped strength from net interest margins, which have leveled off during 2023. Non-interest income decreased by 2.7% from Q4 2022. Trading volume was up, but the high interest rate environment has dampened IPO volume and investment banking activity. Here's one of the, the really big swings here. Loss provisions were up by 40.7% from a year ago and rose from the previous quarter. If you, uh, in this report, we broke down the quarter over quarter changes. What's interesting is that the third quarter, 2023, loss provisions dropped. And it was a bit of a head fake because if we look at what happened in Q4, they increased dramatically. And if we're comparing this to second quarter, 2023, fourth quarter is, is higher than that now. So we're continuing that steady climb up in loan loss provisions, signaling that, again, we're still far from out of the woods on setting aside reserves to cover expected losses on these loan books. And that's across the board, not just commercial real estate, but that also includes cards, autos, and uh, other debt. Yeah, it's not great news for them. I think if you dig a little deeper into the Citigroup restructuring, you mentioned it there, Stephen, sizable in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Just to give some context to that, their press release announced basically they're reducing management layers from 13 to 8. This is the biggest overhaul that the, the bank has had in decades. And so it'll be really interesting to see, is this kind of the start of a restructuring across the sector? Um is the downward pressure on these institutions going to mean that uh, that you start seeing a lot less bureaucracy and, and less management? Or is this kind of limited to city? I think it remains to be seen. It's a really great piece that we put together for this, you know, earnings season. So Haley mentioned it'll be released tomorrow. If you'd like to get a copy of that, if you're not on the mailing list already, just email us at podcast.trep.com and we'll be happy to send you a copy of the uh, the report as soon as it's out tomorrow. This week, we opened registration for our upcoming Market Pulse webinar, which is taking place on Friday, January 26th at 1 p.m. So Lonnie and Stephen will be joined by Jay Parsons, Chief Economist at RealPage, where they'll break down the multifamily and housing market. They'll talk about office property, operating expenses, and give a little more of a deep dive into the bank earnings. So if you wanted to sign up for that, send us an email to podcast at trep.com and we'll send you that link to sign up. But speaking of Jay Parsons and the multifamily sector, we did see a lot of multifamily sales across the country that we were tracking this week. Yeah, so I'm super excited about the Market Pulse webinar. We hope that a lot of you will sign up if you're 
not a regular attendee of that, something that we do every month. And uh, it's been a really great experience for Stephen and myself. And we're looking forward to this one, having a guest, as Haley mentioned, um, be very uh, multifamily centric. And so it's a great segue to the sales that I'm going to run through quickly. So Acacia Capital Corp has paid $62.25 million for a California apartment property. It turns uh, into $502,000 per unit for Villa del Sol. It's a 124-unit property in Sunnyvale, California. Uh, they purchased the property from Pacific Urban Investors, and this was a deal highlighted uh, by Kidder Matthews. The property is located at 355 East Evelyn Avenue, which is 40 miles south of San Francisco. Year of construction was 2001. It has one, two, and three bedroom units. Get this, Stephen. Rent starts at this place at just about $3,100 for 679 square feet. And they include washers and dryers and patios or balconies. Nice uh, nice amenity for some folks there in the uh, Sunnyvale region. We also had Decron, which sold two Southern California apartments for just about $41 million. This is uh, an affiliate of Bobby Sadian, paid $40.9 million. These were a 145-unit property in Los Angeles and Van Nuy, California. Uh, this was according to The Real Deal. They bought both properties from Decron Properties. They paid $22 million or just over $300,000 a unit for the property called Caitlin Court. That one was 73 units. It's at 1340 North Poinsettia Place in L.A., and then $18.9 million, or roughly $263,000 per unit for Amanda Regency. That complex was 72 units. It was at 6805 Louise Avenue. Fannie Mae provided the financing on the previous deals, and these uh, purchases were an assumption of those loans. Total outstanding loan balance on the assumption was around $19 million. Thoroughfare Capital provided $26 million worth of financing for an 82-unit Chapman Place Apartments in San Diego. This was according to Multi-Housing News. Loan was arranged by Capital Partners. Chapman Place is owned by Del Mar California Investment Group and used proceeds of the loan to retire construction financing. So some really good California stories. As we mentioned, we've had a lot of negative news coming out of California in the retail space. But it seems like for hotels and multifamily, we've had a lot of, of positive news over the last several months. So we got two more property transactions here. First up, we have some apartments in Mesa, Arizona that sold for $44.5 million. An affiliate of Macro Real Investment Group has paid $44.5 million, or 200 about $213,000 a unit, for the 209-unit Trails at Harris apartment property in Mesa, Arizona. The Arcadia California Company bought the property at 1653 South Harris Drive from MIG Real Estate, according to brokerage Kidder Matthews. It had funded the purchase with a $27.98 million Fannie Mae loan from M&T Realty Corp. Trails at Harris was built in 1983 and has units with one or two bedrooms, each that carry monthly rents starting at $13.13. So it's looking pretty good compared to the uh, $3,000. However, I got to say, being a New Yorker now, I appreciate in-unit laundry <laughs> a lot. Yeah, I couldn't imagine uh, not having that coming from Texas. Um but I understand that that's not a not a thing everywhere. I will give a quick shout out. I know we usually save shout outs until the end, but uh, shout out to our loyal listener David E uh, with Kidder Matthews. It's good to see them getting a couple on the uh, on the scoreboard on this week's segment. So one last one here: uh, General Enterprise paid thirty eight million three hundred twenty thousand a unit for 
Capistrano Gardens. This is in Norwalk, California. Japanese company purchased the property from a local investor. Property was at 13811 Shoemaker Avenue, built in 1968. One, two, and three bedroom units. Uh, here's some affordable LA rents. $2,030 a month is what the rents start at. This property is about 16 miles south of, of LA. So I think a really nice you know, set of sales and transactions on the multifamily sector. And I think we've talked about this some, Stephen. We did a one-on-one a few weeks ago where we kind of went through some of the pitfalls of underwriting multifamily. But it seems like there's still, even with some of the negative headlines and, and headwinds, there's still a pretty strong appetite for well-located, well-positioned multifamily properties across the U.S., Absolutely. With permits dropping and construction kind of leveling off, I think there continues to be a really strong appeal for, as you say, good properties located in top tier markets that continue to have strong prospects for rent growth. While nobody likes negative leverage going into a deal, rent growth can ultimately bail you out of that negative leverage situation over the long run and get you back to that positive leverage point. So Maybe our in our next segment, we should do a deep dive on positive and negative leverage uh, and underwriting for multifamily. Let's do it. Okay, let's move on to the office segment. We had stories about loans moving to special servicing, value reductions, and then some sales. Yeah, this is the segment that doesn't have as much excitement and optimism, unfortunately. The, uh, the narrative for the office sector still remains subdued. Um, and this first story, kind of uh, fitting that we just finished up the apartment section and now we're talking about office. And in this case, the tenant that we're talking about is uh, Fannie Mae. So Fannie Mae is going to be vacating uh, 713,000 square feet from the Midtown Center office complex in Washington, D.C. Stories according to BizNow, the housing finance agency was paying just under $50 a square foot for its leased space and is a large, large tenant. 713,000 square foot was what they're vacating. They currently have occupied about 867,000 square foot of the main space since signing the lease in 2015. So at one point they occupied about 82% of the building. So a sizable blow for Midtown Center uh, owner on this, on this deal. The lease is set to mature in September of 23. Uh, but can terminate early in May of 29, as long as it gives 32 months notice and pays $66 million termination fee. This property has a $382 million senior loan split across three deals. It's a 14-story trophy office building, three-level underground parking garage. It's a really nice property. Uh, lead certification gold uh, from April of 2019. So again, this is one of those that we probably didn't think five or six years ago we'd be talking about losing a named government tenant. And here, effectively, they're choosing to vacate. There is some protection, obviously, on the on the lease term, but for that market, the odds of them retenanting that space probably not great given the uh, circumstance. Yeah, this will be an interesting one to watch. I, I think of it in kind of the same vein as what we saw in San Francisco. So this might be a good bellwether for tenant demand in the Washington, D.C. area. Because when you talk about trophy, class A buildings that are amenity rich, I mean, this is the picture of it. I don't know if you've had a chance to look at the, the building pictures, Lonnie, but I mean, this is a really good looking building. Uh, I'll be curious to see how they how they do on retenanting it, because I feel like they should have at least some demand if, assuming Washington, D.C. isn't just a complete ghost town. 
Yeah, I mean, I think to your point, the building itself is awesome. The challenge is just the market. And, you know, you and I have presented a, a couple of different times looking at some of our taller, our bank contributed data. And if you look at that criticized loan percentage, which in our ranking system, criticized loan is anything at six or above, DC now takes the top spot. About 72, 74% of their office properties are in that criticized range. You couple that with the delinquency and special servicing exposure in the CMBS market and the DC office market, which is to your point, not taking the headlines like San Francisco, Chicago, LA, I think DC's in probably a much more precarious spot. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. Uh, it is one that we'll definitely continue to watch. I am hopeful maybe with the physical characteristics of this building, it does have potential to get um, retenanted. But I think the fundamentals there are just really, really soft. We had another story here. One Market Plaza in San Francisco transferred to special servicing. As Haley mentioned, we have a bunch of office stories this week that transferred to special servicing. Um, in this case, there is expect expectation of an extension coming. So according to the January remit data, um, the One Market Plaza loan uh, was transferred on January 8th. Um, just after the data hit, Commercial Observer broke the story, stated the borrowers have secured an extension in exchange for a paydown, uh, which will likely require additional equity to fund reserves, um, according to both comments in the article. And there were some new comments posted by the special servicer. There was no um, definition or ex expansion on what the equity contributions were going to be. Uh, but this loan was slated to mature in February of 2024. Property has a $975 million loan, part of a 2017 deal. 1.6 million square foot office was built in 76 and renovated in 2016. Currently, Google is the top tenant. Currently leases about 22% of the space on a lease that expires in 2025. Google has already proactively announced it's going to be downsizing its office footprint nationally but we don't know if uh, if it's going to impact this particular building. Behind Google, Visa is the second largest tenant, currently occupies just over 10% of the space with lease uh, term that ends in 2026. So this property is interesting, Stephen. According to September 23 financials, occupancy was 96%. Uh, DSCR at the net cash flow was 2.12x. Uh, and that was through the first nine months of 23. In this particular deal, and we're going to have a, um, maybe a, a deep dive or a, potentially a guest on in the next couple of months from a special servicer's office to kind of get some color on how these extensions and modifications play out. I think what gets left out of the headline sometimes is just how significant these capital contributions can be. So I know we talked about Pru Plaza a couple of days ago or a couple of weeks ago on the pod. Um, and it got an extension, and we didn't have the color behind that of what was given for the extension. I saw an article today, I think it was like a $40 million capital infusion from the borrower. So in this one market plaza, you're talking about almost a billion dollars in loan balance. I'm assuming it's going to be a sizable capital contribution um, from the borrower in order to, to get the extension. Yes. And one thing that we, we didn't put out there in this story, at least for the, the podcast that I, I want to make sure to note, is that there were some subleases that we attracted this property. So Visa had put their space at that property out for sublease 
and Autodesk had as well. Fortunately, we had a follow-up story back in the, the summer of 2023, noting that even though Autodesk had put that space out for sublease, they ended up renewing 93,000 square feet of that property and would let 73,000 square feet that they had put out for sublease lapse. So that was a, a mixed mixed bag for the property, admittedly. But I mean, the positive is at least Autodesk stayed committed to the property and we still have that uh, Visa sublease space hanging out there in the market. So there's definitely some concerns about what will happen with occupancy because it feels like to, to what you hinted at, Lonnie, that 90 96% is is definitely above where a lot of properties are are hanging out right now in San Francisco. Yeah. So let's transition to a couple of other stories. So I'll try to run through a few of these quickly and then uh, and then you can comment at the end, Stephen. We have a SASB office loan that's heading to special servicing. So this is the core office portfolio. It's an entire 100% of a 2019 deal heading to special servicing this month. This is according to January uh, remittance data. They've exercised all three of its one-year extension options. It's reached its fully extended maturity date in December of 23, and it's currently being shown as non-performing matured balloon for the past two months. The loan was originally just over $400 million, um, excluding any MES debt, which was backed up by seven properties. Five properties have been released throughout the loan term at a release price of 110%, which has helped pay the loan down to $148 million. But per the servicer comments, the two properties that remain are one Pierre Pont Plaza in Brooklyn and Station Square in Pittsburgh. So we'll keep an eye on that one over the next couple of months and see what happens there. We also had a New Jersey office loan transferred to special servicing. It's a $51.3 million 30 Nightbridge loan. It's about 5% of a 2014 deal uh, transferred to special servicing for imminent monetary default. That's according to January remittance data. This was one that kind of fits the narrative that you just described, Stephen. Occupancy at year end of 22 was at 94%. According to the September 23 financials, however, occupancy had dipped to 73%. Second and third largest tenants had lease expirations in September of 23. So the transfer may be the result of one or both of those tenants failing to renew. If you look at the DSCR at net cash flow through the first nine months of 23, it was at 1.86x, which was actually higher uh, than the 1.44x in 2022. And this property had an appraised value of 82 million when the loan was securitized back in 2014. Up next, we had Manhattan had 192 $100 plus per square foot office leases signed in 2023. So almost 200 leases with a rent above $100 a square foot. So this was a record that was set for New York office building leasing last year, according to JLL. Those governed 5.6 million square feet of space. A dozen of those governing 198,000 square feet had rents of $200 a square foot or more. Well, the number of leases is a record. The volume of space was down 8.2% from 2022 when 6.1 million square feet of such premium leases were signed. A record 8.8 .8 million of leases were signed in 2019. A total of 90 of the big ticket leases signed last year were buildings that were newly constructed or recently underwent significant renovations. It's a clear indication of the bifurcation of the Manhattan office market. And I would say more generally what we're seeing nationwide in that it's taking amenity-rich properties, signing these these tenants and not the class B, even in some cases A-minus if they're lacking the amenities. The premium leases were signed in a total of 
80 buildings, breaking the previous record of 77 buildings in 2022. The Seagram building with 830,000 square feet at 375 Park had the most big ticket agreements with 12 leases signed. Meanwhile, 55 Hudson Yards, 66 Hudson Boulevard, and 767 Fifth Avenue each had seven leases. Yeah, what's interesting here, Stephen, is is that the face rate on the rent? You know, what's the net effective rent on these deals? Like, yeah, the headline number looks great at $100 or plus per square foot. Um, but if you're giving away a ton of free rent on the front end or you have significant TI allowances on these, you know, what does that break even or net effective look like um, for some of these deals? I mean, I know we've done some research on some of the more recent New York office leases of size on a 10-year term. You might not start actually collecting until the end of year three. Uh, because of the TIs and abatement. So it'll be interesting to see. Uh, listen, great news. Uh, anytime you can get almost 200 leases at $100 a square foot, especially in this market for the office sector, I take that as a huge win. Um, but I think that might be a little bit of puffering, um, you know, of the stats here uh, relative to all in that effective on these. Absolutely. Yeah. To your point, if you look at the base rent versus effective rent, call that the effective rent spread. I mean, that's remained very, very high. And we look at what's happening with lease term. You're seeing free rent terms of roughly 12 to 18 months on a lot of these leases. And it's pushing them out from, instead of signing a 10-year lease, they're basically pushing out the term to 11 or 12 years to recoup those, those concessions that they're having to give up front. We've got a couple of other stories here. Vacant office building near Atlanta sold for just under 15 million. 14 and a half million was the sales price. It was a free chapel worship center. Um, was the buyer. Uh, they paid about $117 a square foot. This is for 124,000 square foot Woodside Terrace office building. It's at 3755 Mansell Road in Atlanta. It's a vacant four-story building, includes recording studios and a fitness center purchased from Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, which had purchased the property in 2016. Marcus and Millichap was the broker on this deal. And then I think we'll have maybe just do two more of these office stories that we have. Uh, value of DC office was lowered, but the value remains above loan balance. So again, got a lot of really uh, hot off the press January remittance data in this uh, week's podcast. According to the January data, the value of the collateral behind the $130 million Federal Center Plaza loan has been reduced. The newly appraised value for the office was lowered to $237 million which is down 23% from the $309 million appraised value back in 2013. This is a property built in 1981, has two adjoining eight-story government office buildings that span about 725,000 square feet. Back in December, we noted that FEMA, who leased 42% of the space, would be vacating, which obviously uh, impacted the appraised value on this asset. So 25% haircut or 23% haircut on the value is uh, probably still optimistic, in my opinion, based on um, the vacating tenant. Uh, we'll see if that one continues to erode on the value side or if they're able to, to back lease that space. And then we had uh, BH Properties bought a suburban Dallas office. Um, they acquired Parkway Center 4, 154,000 square foot office building just outside of Dallas in Plano, Texas. That's according to the Dallas Morning News. The buyer was a Los Angeles uh, investor which purchased the property from an affiliate of Goldman Sachs. Uh, Newmark Group brokered the transaction. It was built in 2006 and recently underwent $2 million in renovations. 
and currently has occupancy sitting at about 82%. So another story that just highlights what you talked about there, uh, Stephen, in terms of the recently renovated or newer construction office buildings being the ones that maybe have a little bit of an appetite from the investment community in the uh, in the office sector. You know, it's funny, Lonnie, maybe this is too much on a personal note, but, you know, I was racking my brain when you mentioned that Atlanta sales, like Mansell Road, 3755 Mansell. I just pulled it up. Sure enough, that was one of the very first properties I did due diligence on. When I was uh, working on BP's underwriting out of, out of undergrad. How that stuck out in my memory, I have no idea. Well, you're, you're, uh, we're data nerds, man. It's like, uh, you know, you could probably, I know there's, there's multifamily properties that I've underwritten or valued or done an appraisal work on, where it's like, just tell me the name of the property. I can tell you the unit mix, the number of vacant units down due to fire, water damage, whatever from 10 years ago. I mean, it's, it's funny, but that's, that's a good anecdote. So did you guys move forward on that deal or, uh, or was it one that you moved out? So I was actually using that for lease comps okay. for a building that was right across the street. Nothing, nothing too special about it. I mean, it's a good looking building. It's typical for Alpharetta office. It's set back a little bit, looks like a nice campus. So I'd say if it's a ministry buying it, that's, it's a pretty good reuse of the property. Yeah, that's good. And finally, we have some retail stories about a retail center sale and the value of a super regional mall being lowered. First up, we have a Sarasota, Florida retail center selling for $30.5 million. Benderson Development has paid $30.5 million, or just more than $319 a square foot, for the 95,000 square foot Glengarry Shops retail property in Sarasota, Florida. The University Park, Florida company purchased the property from Regency Centers of Jacksonville, Florida. The sale was first reported by RE Business Online. Collier's brokered the deal, and Glengarry Shops sits on a 10.5-acre site at 4020 South Tamini Trail and is 97% leased to tenants that include Best Buy and Barnes & Noble. Up next, we have the value of Jacksonville Super Regional Mall was lowered, but the value remains above the loan balance. According to January remittance data, one of the two remaining loans in a 2013 deal had, its, had the value of its collateral reduced in January. The value of the collateral behind the $110 million Avenues loan had been reduced. The newly appraised value for the Super Regional Mall property was lowered to $166 million, down 32% from the $244 million appraised value in December 2012. The new appraised value pushes the LTV for that loan up to 66%. So really not bad in the scheme of what we've seen malls reappraised for here. This is one of the more benign stories, I would say. So this loan makes up just under 46% of that 2013 deal. The loan received a three-year extension in July 2023 after the loan failed to pay off at its scheduled maturity date in February 2023. The debt service coverage ratio on a net cash flow basis had been strong for this property, 2.96 for the first nine months of 2023 and 2.92 in 2022. However, occupancy has been below 70% since 2019 when the Sears at the property closed. So some perpetual occupancy weakness, but cash flow has been relatively resilient at this mall. Yeah, I would say if you're the mall operator here with Sears vacating, occupancy dipping to 70%, but DSCR still healthy, almost at 3x. Um, you're feeling pretty good about this. And getting, you know, an additional three-year extension, definitely favorable for them, even with the appraisal reduction. And on the previous story, the Sarasota Center, you know, it's another one. It seems like every week when we talk about retail, these junior anchor type of, of centers 
are eclipsing that $300 per square foot value range, regardless of location. I mean, obviously Sarasota is a nice market, um, but to see a 96,000, you know, square foot center sell for 319 a square foot is a, uh, is a good sign for that, uh, that sector. So before we turn to shout outs, we do have a programming note today. For the past month or so, we've been a little secretive. We've been slightly mentioning our new daily newsletter, but we haven't officially told everyone what it's called or what it is. But tomorrow we will be launching the newsletter, which is called The Rundown. For anyone to subscribe to, this is a daily culmination of CRE lease and transaction stories that Stephen, Lonnie, our team arrests and others on the research teams are diligently putting together every day to keep the market updated on what we're tracking, to give you insight into the podcast stories that you would hear about on Thursday, but get it in your inbox every morning. So head to our LinkedIn. If you're listening to this on Friday morning or after, you'll see it. You'll be able to subscribe there and you'll get insights from the team every day into your inbox. We'll include links where you could send us stories if there's something you think we should be writing about or we should be talking about. Yeah, Haley, we're very excited about this because it does a couple of things. We had a lot of inbound saying, we wish that the Tripwire podcast could be done daily. We love that you guys cover the markets real time and provide insight. And the reality for us is the podcast is something we love doing, but we actually have day jobs at Trap that prevent us from being able to record a podcast every day. But effectively for our listeners, you now get the same type of stories and information, lease transactions, sales transactions, new development, construction starts, et cetera, real time delivered to your inbox every morning. So this is one of those projects that we feel like was really born out of the inbounds and the interactions we've had with our listeners. And we're hopeful that you guys see this as being additive. It's super easy read every morning um, and we're just getting started. What you're gonna see tomorrow um, is version 1.0. It's been in beta phase. We've had thousands of readers and the feedback has been overwhelmingly positive. And we're hoping that as we do a more full-scale launch of this, that, that the experience is just as good. So for those that are keeping score at home, in the last three weeks, we've released our new flagship TREP CRE commercial real estate platform. And now we're releasing the rundown and there's more to come in 2024. And turning to shout outs, Cody L. thanked us for another great episode. David E. had some comments for you, Stephen. He said, you're sharp and speaks, and you speak clearly and succinctly about the conditions affecting CRE. So thank you, David. Thank you, David. Arash K. loves the weekly show. Josh C. was just introduced to the pod and was really excited to find it. Amy B. thanks us for an informative podcast. Eli W. is a big fan of the TREP podcast, and he works with a broker and a friend of ours who we met with at at C. And then we got a bunch of people requesting access to the newsletter. Zach, Weston G, Michael P, and Zach D. I had a couple shout outs this week too, Haley. So uh, we got to have a really nice lunch with um, some friends of the firm this week. So Shane M and Jonathan B, thanks for making the trip up to New York. It was great uh, getting to hang out for a little bit with you guys. Um, we appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Uh, Keith K., reached out on LinkedIn and as a Texas Tech alum, he liked the shout out and a uh, little bit of razzing I was given Stephen a couple of weeks ago on the tech stories and uh, said he wants to connect and, and be a sponsor or do something with us on the uh, on the real estate conference that we host there. So 
Uh, again, we really appreciate everybody reaching out to us, emailing us, connecting on LinkedIn and Twitter. It, it really is a highlight for us every week. And I know we've been dealing with some winter weather. We talked about our travels to Craft C. I think those ended up being fine. But Lonnie, you were traveling to New York this week and had to deal with some winter weather. But I don't think any of that compares with what the NFL teams were dealing with with the winter weather. I saw football stands covered in snow, fans having to shovel themselves out, and beers exploding and freezing on each other's hands. So what did you guys make of all that happening with the NFL this week? You know, just to tie it back to the comments earlier in the program about the gig economy, I was I was laughing about this with my wife. I was like, you know what? I might have actually volunteered for 20 bucks an hour to go shovel snow if I was that bored. I mean, you know, if you don't get into the stadium much, why not? Yeah. One video of a guy sliding down the uh, the seats there in the stadium having a good old time. I don't know how he was standing that cold with the shirt off, but man, it looked like fun. Well, that's the thing. I, I saw the video, too. Like, listen i'm i'm wimpy okay like there's no no doubt about it like i'm not made for that i couldn't do that you'd have to pay me a lot more than what you could afford to pay me to have to go out there and do it and then i would hire someone else to come and do it for me because that's too cold i mean like it's those people watching the games shirtless getting hypothermia i got no time for that like i'm watching the game at home um in the heater with the heater on and the fireplace whatever but yeah, Haley, I had I had a little bit of travel delays with some weather in, in the Dallas uh, airport this weekend. It's really interesting. It's just amazing how a little bit of snow in Texas or ice just disrupts everything. And then in Buffalo, New York, you literally have like cars buried in snow and they postpone a game one day and then everyone shows up to the stadium like it's nothing. So um, I'm definitely not not as tough as those folks. Me neither. I wear three sweaters in our TREP office because I can't handle the cold there. So I'm definitely not <laughs> going to be a fan in those stands. I guess I'm the odd duck out here. I love the cold. I love it. Bring it. If anyone has tickets, send them Stephen's way. And with that, we'll close. Join us next week as we discuss what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. If you have a question or a comment, send us an email at podcast.trip.com and subscribe to the Tripwire podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you for listening and stay well. All right.